Nehemiah chapter 2, we are on the 10th message, never thought it would be this long, never do, Uh, the 10th message in a series called The Rebuilders that started out with this verse in Amos chapter 9, I will bring my people Israel back from exile and they will rebuild. And last week, Nigel started the Nehemiah journey with some thoughts about prayer and Nehemiah's leadership and his call. And the week before, Linda talked about the posture of a leader, the posture of humility or or for a rebuilder. Uh, Prior to that, we've gone through Ezra and also Haggai. So we're continuing Nehemiah too. But before we get to Nehemiah, let's have some Hebrew fun. Are you ready for some Hebrew fun? Yeah? Good. Okay. So in Isaiah, Isaiah was one of the books that was really important for the exiles. Isaiah wrote before the exile. And even before it had begun or ended, Isaiah named the king Cyrus, who would let the exiles go back to Jerusalem. And Isaiah's book is actually in two parts. I think it's on two scrolls. Uh, Isaiah 1 to 39, and then there's a really distinct break, and Isaiah 40 to 66. And Isaiah 40, there's a shift in tone, and it starts off with the words, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. So speaking to the future exiles, Isaiah sends this message of comfort for them. Now, Hebrew word for comfort is Naham. Now you've got to, you're going to do this. You've got to bark out that, that H. It's not Naham. It's Naham. Okay, you ready? Go for it. Naham. Yeah, okay. Naham. And then the Hebrew word for Lord, as you know, is Yahweh. But it's frequently shortened just to Yah, as in Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. So we've got Naham and we've got Yah. Say Naham Yah. Say, Naham Yah. Nehemiah. He's the one who's bringing comfort. He's the one that's going to bring the message of strength and protection to God's people. His name literally means the comfort of the Lord. Naham Yah is how it's pronounced in Hebrew. We'll stick with Nehemiah. Uh, he, that's, that's, that's the dude's background. That's his name. I love stuff like that. I think it's class. Um, Comfort, comfort my people. The word comfort means strength. And Nehemiah is going to build the walls of Jerusalem. And he's going to strengthen and protect the city of Jerusalem. He is a man who is moved by the plight of people, as we saw in chapter 1. He is a man of prayer. And it's quite funny because as you read Nehemiah chapter 1, it's quite short. But if you're paying attention, you get to the end of the chapter and it records some of Nehemiah's prayer to God. Uh, And Nehemiah prays and says, Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. And if you've read the chapter, like the 10 verses before that, you get to that point and you're like, Who is this man? You haven't referred to any man, Nehemiah, with no idea who you're talking about. And it's almost as if Nehemiah realizes at that point that he hasn't indicated who he is talking about. And at the very end of chapter 1, he says, Oh, I was the cupbearer to the king. 
It's like when you're writing an essay in English and you've suddenly realized you've forgotten to put in an important detail and uh, he had no tipex and he couldn't, you know, he, he just sticks it in at the end there. I was the cupbearer to the king. His job was to bring wine to King Artaxerxes. A bit more, he was a servant, but he was probably a bit more than that. He selected the wine and he probably looked after the wine cellar. Quite a responsibility. He wasn't just carrying the, the, the vessel of wine and saying, here you go, your majesty. It was a, a bigger job than that. But the king is Artaxerxes. And back in Ezra 4, if you remember, no problem if you don't, I'll not be offended. Well, only a wee bit. But back in Ezra 4, the building of the walls stopped for about 16 years due to opposition, which led to King Artaxerxes stopping the project. So this is the same king that we've got here as the one who said to the exiles who went back with Ezra, no more building of the temple. And that's the king that Nehemiah is serving in the king's court. So let's read Nehemiah chapter 2. I'm going to cover the whole chapter today, pick out what, what I've referred to as some huge questions as we go through. Huge questions that, that will keep you chewing for a while. We, we were doing this thing this week. Linda has this wee sort of game where, you've, where you have these cards and... Uh, you, you, there's questions on them. And then, you know, if there's four or five people just having a conversation and a bit of crack, these, you have to then answer these questions. And some of them are quite light, you know, like, you know, how would you rank the strictness of your parents on a scale of one to 10? Uh, and some of them are really deep, really, really weighty things that you're just like, oh goodness, I don't know. But we've got some big, big questions coming up here today. Let's read from, from Nehemiah 2 verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. That's just how you addressed the king. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. If it pleases the king... And if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates, so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. In other words, a safe journey. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, that sounds familiar, the king granted my requests. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and I gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. 
when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, two bad eggs, when those officials heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. Now, I've had two Sundays off from preaching, which means it's now three weeks since you've seen this. <laughs> Delightful thing. Let me just show you where we are. The blue bit in the middle, 536 BC, Zerubbabel leads the first group of exiles from Babylon back to Jerusalem and focuses on rebuilding the temple, the altar, and worship, re-establishing worship. That's the first wave that go back. In green, we've got Ezra. In about 458 BC, he leads a second wave of exiles back and he re-establishes the word of God among the people. So he rebuilds the people by using God's word. So Zerubbabel goes first, focuses on the temple. Then Ezra goes and focuses on the word. And now it's 445 BC and Nehemiah goes to focus on the walls. Jerusalem, you may wonder what all the fuss is about Jerusalem. It was not a very nice city to look at. The architecture was nothing compared to a lot of cities in the ancient world. Uh, it was not in a good location in terms of being protected or easy to protect. It did not even have a river. It was not at a seaport. It just wasn't a great city by, by sort of secular choice. But the reason why it is so important to God's people was because God said, that's the place where I have chosen for my name to dwell. That's the place where the king was to rule from. You were not a legitimate king in Israel if you did not rule from Jerusalem and you were not a descendant of David. Jerusalem was important. It was the location of the temple, again, so it's important. And it was the place where all the men had to go three times a year with their families for Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. Okay, so regardless of the fact that geographically it wasn't too hot and it didn't look too good, this was the center of the universe. And that's why when Nehemiah hears that Jerusalem is in a bad shape in chapter 1, he sat down and he wept. He's not the only person who ever wept over Jerusalem. For some days he mourned and fasted. Nigel told us last week it was over 100 days. It was close to four months that, that Nehemiah prayed and fasted about the situation in Jerusalem. So that's why he's so ticked about it. It is a really important city. And you can see the hand of God in this already. Some of us, we need, honestly, an angel to walk into the room and tell us what to do. <laughs> Whereas others, like Nehemiah, the stirring of their heart and the providence of God starts to put pieces together and you can't ignore it. What is the chance that the same guy who mourned and wept and fasted about Jerusalem after hearing a report about it is also the guy who gets to walk up to the king every evening after dinner and bring him the day's wine selection? God is already in the background and he is already weaving things together because God has a plan for Nehemiah and a plan for Jerusalem. And 
As another thing that you could easily miss when you're reading your Bible with the books in the order that we have them in is that you could miss the fact that Esther has happened. We're not doing Esther at the minute, but in, you know, in between Ezra 6 and Ezra 7, the events of the book of Esther takes place. And Esther is the woman who had the courage to go into the presence of the king uninvited to plead for her people. And, and Mordecai said to Esther that famous verse, maybe you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Maybe that is why you're here, Esther, because you're God's woman at this time in history to deliver his people. And Nehemiah has all that in his recent memory. That would have been a key story for him, inspiring him to go to the presence of the king. And I love what, what, what Nehemiah says in verse, well, before we get to verse 3, it's quite bizarre that a Persian pagan king notices that his servant is not in good shape that he actually, something happens in his heart that day that Artaxerxes pays attention to the fact that Nehemiah is a bit miserable. And not only does he pay attention to it, but he realizes that he's not ill and he asks him what's wrong and he, he diagnoses it as a sadness of heart. Artaxerxes would not have commonly done that. God is weaving the whole thing together. And I love what Nehemiah says at the start of, I think it's verse three, I was very much afraid. Oh, I take courage from that. When God's servants in the Bible said, you know what, I was terrified. Nelson Mandela said that courage was not the absence of fear, but the triumph over it. The brave man is not he who does not feel afraid, but he who conquers that fear. Fear is normal and it's natural and it's common. And whenever fear holds us back, that's when it becomes a problem. But Nehemiah just comes out with it and he just says, I was very much afraid. He's in the presence of this pagan king who could have just said, how dare you come into my court looking miserable with a face on you like a lurgan spade. How dare you come up to me like that? And he could have had him executed. <laughs> that's how fickle these kings were. So Nehemiah is terrified when he's asked, what's going on. But he overcomes his fear and he speaks to the king and basically says, why should I not be sad when Jerusalem is in the state that it's in? And the king asks him a question. It's the first of three huge questions that we're going to kick around today. And I hope you're going to kick around this afternoon over your coffee and maybe for another day or two after that. The king said to me, what is it that you want? What is it that you want? Jesus in the Gospels asks over 300 questions. One of the ways that he taught and engaged with people was by asking questions. And the first words that Jesus speaks, if you've got a red letter Bible, as in your, in your Gospels, the words of Jesus are in red. It's not always perfectly accurate, but it's pretty helpful. If you've got a red letter Bible and you turn to John chapter 1, you find the first words that Jesus speaks in John 1 are a question. And the question he asks to a couple of disciples who come and follow him after John the Baptist directs them to him, the first question he asks is, what do you want? Now, I'm sure John, as he wrote his gospel, thought long and hard, what is the first 
words of Jesus that I want to put in this book of mine. What is it? What do you want? Jesus also said that, asked the same question to some blind men who came to him in Matthew 20. Jesus stopped and called them, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want? The king, Artaxerxes, says to Nehemiah, what is it that you want? How would you answer that question? You know, the, the, the sort of, when you're thinking on a, on a natural, simple level, what do you want? You might say, I want money in the bank. I want oil in the tank. I want health. I want the cars to keep going. I want relationships to be strong. All of those things are, are good things and helpful things. The disciples actually give Jesus a wonderful answer. And if you know John's gospel and you know the fact that Jesus came to replace the temple as the place where God's name dwells, Jesus, you know, Jesus asks them the question, what do you want? And they say to him, it's, they don't realize how brilliant it is, but they say to him, where do you dwell? And it just kicks off the whole gospel of John, showing us where God dwells in the person of Jesus. What do you want? Before answering the king, and we're going to think about this question a bit more in a minute or two. Before answering the king, Nehemiah needs to speak to somebody more important. The king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. And here you see in a couple of, not even, all, it's on the same page of your Bible. You see Nehemiah in chapter 1 doing four months almost of prayer and fasting. Sometimes prayer is long and it's drawn out and it's persistent, consistent, repeated period of prayer. And then sometimes prayer is really short. You go from four months of prayer in chapter one to about four seconds of prayer here. This is what I call a bullet prayer. <laughs> Bang, he's just in the moment and he shoots up an instant prayer. Something like this, God help. And then he answers the king. <laughs> you can, you know, this is the beauty of the, the, the presence of the spirit. It's the beauty of the new covenant and being the people of God. We don't have to jump through any hoops or do any crazy stuff to, to go into the presence of God. In a moment, in the courtyard of a pagan king, Nehemiah can just shoot up a prayer. Help! Help! And the praying months of chapter 1 prepared him for these crucial minutes in chapter 2, in the presence of the king. And note the order. I prayed to the God of heaven. That's what I did first. And whenever the, the Old Testament writers in Ezra and Nehemiah, whenever they talk about the God of heaven, they're emphasizing his sovereignty. This is the king. <laughs> this is the one who will control how this conversation goes. I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. And he knows exactly what he wants. I love this. <laughs> he says in, in verse 5, let me go to Judah and rebuild. So the king, stay with me here. The king has said to him, what do you want? He says, right, I want to go to Jerusalem and I want to rebuild it. And the king says, okay, how long will you be? And he sets a time. He tells him how long he's going to be. He knows that. He knows he wants to rebuild. He knows how long it's going to take. He then talks about getting some letters so he can have a safe journey. Because the king controls the whole region and Nehemiah doesn't want to run into any bother. So in verse 7, he asks for letters to the governors so that they will allow him a safe journey. All right. 
I want to go back and rebuild. And here's how long it'll take. And I want letters so I have a safe journey. And I want more letters. I want a letter to go to the dude that looks after the forest. So that he will give me timber to make beams for the gates. I need timber for beams for the gates. And I need timber for the city wall. And while we're at it, I need timber for my house. (laughs) And he just rattles it all off. He's like a kid who just knows daddy's in a good mood and I'm going to keep on going as long as I can. And he keeps on asking for more. And I'm sure there was a... When he got to the last bit and talks about getting timber to build himself a nice house, he's probably thinking, I'm dead. (laughs) I'm pushing it too far. But he, he keeps on asking and then he's just like, right, I'm done. <laughs> he stands and he waits for the king's response. Nehemiah knows exactly what he wants. We're going to come back to that. He knows what he wants. And all the requests are fulfilled because of the gracious hand of God upon him. Remember, this is the king who stopped the building of the temple. And Nehemiah has shot up a bullet prayer after four months of long prayer. And the king has changed his mind and said, yeah, I'm in. You can have all that stuff and you can go. And Nehemiah, his work is in a pagan environment. Some of us, we think that because of our environment that we're in, that we cannot be mightily used in the kingdom of God. And that is not right thinking. Nehemiah was the guy who went to the cellar and picked the wine for the king of pagan Persia to have after dinner. He was a couple of months journey on foot from Jerusalem. He probably thought, I'm the last person on earth who's going to go and do this. But God brought it all together and made it happen. So back to the question, what do you want? What do you want? As I was sort of praying over this and just turning it over in my, in my mind, I started to picture if Jesus was to walk in, the king, not King Artaxerxes, but King Jesus, if he was to walk in here and ask you, what do you want? And he was to tell you politely, all of your physical needs are important, but don't worry about the oil in the tank and don't worry about the money in the bank and don't worry about the cars and, and don't worry about, you know, the health concerns. All of those things are important. And he says, yeah, bring those things to me. Cast those burdens upon me. But for now, just push all of those things to one side. And just think about my kingdom. Right? Just think about my kingdom. I'm in a building project. I'm building a thing called the church, Jesus would say. I, I will build my church. And Jesus says, forget about all those other little things or smaller things that you want and just focus on my kingdom, on my building project, the church, on lost humanity. If he was to go and say to you, regarding my kingdom, what do you want? Do you have your answer ready? You see, we have a lot of clarity for our careers. A lot of us know what we want in our career where we want to go and what we want to do and stuff like that. A lot of us have a lot of clarity of, of what we want for our families. <laughs> Having some funny conversations this week about, about men suitors for daughters. And I better, I better say no more, but there's a, there's a very demanding list of, of what somebody wants. Um, we have clarity about what we want in lots of different situations. Do you know what you want in God's kingdom? What do you want? 
Would it be some vague response such as, uh, you know, I'd like to see revival? Or would it be a bit of a deflection of the questions? Jesus is in front of you and he's saying, regarding my church, my building project, my kingdom, what do you want? Would you say, uh, you know what, Jesus, I need to go away and think about that. I'll come back to you in a day or two. Do you have your answer ready? You have your answer ready. It's quite funny sometimes here in the prayer meeting on Tuesday night. We do a lap of the room and uh, just everybody says what, what they want to pray for. And uh, you can always tell the ones, <laughs> quite commonly me as well, you've just sort of stumbled in from a busy day and you've been running about doing things and you haven't really thought about the prayer meeting. And then it, it comes around to you and uh, you've got this opportunity, you're gathered together with God's people in the presence of God to unite your faith and lay hold on God for great things. And it comes to your turn to say what you want to pray for. And you're just like, uh, do you know what? Everything's good. You know, Can't really think anything right now because I haven't thought about it. And, and you, don't, you don't know what to say. And I, it's quite easy for me because I sort of control things and if I've got loads of prayer requests I'll say them at the start whereas if I start with somebody else and go around the circle that means I don't know <laughs> and I need time to think you've got this opportunity to ask for something but you don't know what you want if Jesus came to you right now and said what do you want in his kingdom what would you say I know what I want I want to influence people with the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ Lots of people. That's not, uh, don't misunderstand me to say I want a big church or a mega church or any of that. But I want to take the truth of Jesus and influence as many people as possible. That's what I want. If Jesus would come in and say, what do you want? I'd say, I want that, Jesus. I want that. Somehow create a bigger sphere of influence for this beautiful truth about who you are. I want that. I want... I sound like a child. I want, I want, I want. I want, Jesus, while you're here and you've asked me, I want to connect with the community around me. I want to get to know them. There's a vacant coffee shop on the other side of the car park, Jesus. I want it. <laughs> I want it. Okay? I know what I want. I don't have to him and ha and go away and say, mm, I'll get back to you next week maybe once I'll give it some serious. I know what I want. I want, and I have wanted for about six or eight months now because I started doing some Bible studies in my room at lunchtime with, with a group of kids in Rachel's age in her year group in school because COVID wouldn't let us all gather together. So we were gathering in small bubbles. And, uh, and boy, it just lit my lamp for sitting with a bunch of smart teenagers and opening the word of God and ramming it in. And I want to do that again. And I, re I really want, I want to do that, Jesus. I want to have a bunch of teenagers and take them deep, 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 deep in the Word of God and send them out into life in their early 20s knowing what it has taken me to my 40s to learn and say, you guys have a 20-year head start. Take this wonderful truth. Live it out. Spread it around. I want to do that. I want to sit with 30 or 40 teenagers and just go boom. You know, that's what I want. I want to see the wandering teenagers of these streets gathered in again together into a community. I want to sit with men who have lost their way. I couldn't have done this 10 years ago, but now I'm getting old. And I probably can more now sit down with some younger men who have just messed up 
in their relationships and messed up in their addictions and messed up in various things and see them as a great line in a, a we song by a band called Judah and the Lion that none of you have ever heard of. A great line says, dead men coming back to life. I want that. Do you know what you want? If Jesus came in and said, regarding my kingdom, what do you want? Do you have your answer ready? Because you should. (laughs) And especially if you are in leadership, leaders here and leaders who have influence in other places and anyone who might be listening on the sound cloud, you really should know what you want. (laughs) You really should. What do you want in his kingdom? That's the first question. 28 minutes gone, the others won't take as long. Nehemiah goes to Jerusalem in verse 11. Don't let that pass you by. He's never been to Jerusalem. You think about the timeline. He was born in Babylon. All he knows about Jerusalem is what was told to him in stories by the old exiles. He's never been there. He's never seen it. And for the first time in his life, he travels up to Jerusalem. And he goes to inspect the walls. Let's read. We haven't read these verses yet. I went to Jerusalem, verse 11. And after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. He goes at night. He only brings a few people. He doesn't start putting sort of posters up and, and, and screaming from the rooftops. He keeps everything close to his heart. He can't do it on his own. He needs some people with him and he brings some people with him. And in verse 50, or in <laughs> slide 53, in verse 12, I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do. What a lovely phrase. If you look at Nehemiah 1, God does not speak to Nehemiah at any stage. God does not tell Nehemiah, I want you to go to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls. The crisis is the call. Nehemiah's heart is turned inside out when he hears about Jerusalem. God put it in his heart. And and another question I would ask you, what has God put in your heart to do? And do you need to start doing it instead of waiting for something more from God? Nehemiah didn't wait around saying, I have to hear an audible voice. I have to have five confirmations of this. It is good to seek, you know, if you're going to try some new thing in the kingdom, it is good to seek the counsel and advice of other believers and have them pray into it with you, advise you on it. But Nehemiah does not delay, does not spend ages faffing around with, with, with God repeatedly trying to find out what it is he's supposed to do. He knows God is stirring his heart. He's got a comfortable life bringing wine to the king. Probably gets the odd glass himself when he's finished work for the day. Well paid. Decent living quarters. Safe. But his heart is just turned upside down for Jerusalem. God put it in my heart to do it. That's enough. Okay? God's stirring your heart for a certain thing, a certain people or whatever, a certain ministry. That's enough. That's enough. Nehemiah says, God put it in my heart to do this. In verse 
13, by night I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate. <laughs> the dung gate. You want to know, don't you? <laughs> That's where they all brought their rubbish, trash, garbage, whatever you want to call it. They all, you know, one day a week, if the council weren't on strike, they all brought their wheelie bins down to the dung gate and left them there. Um, and the wind, the direction the wind blew, apparently blew the smell then out of the city instead of back into the city. That's the dung gate. Okay. You didn't need to know that at all. Uh, so anyway, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to go through. So I went up the valley by night examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or, I love this, or any others who would be doing the work. <laughs> so Nehemiah has a pile of people in mind who are going to do the work, but he hasn't told them yet. <laughs> Just watch out for that. Examining in verse 13 goes to all these different stations around the walls, all these different gates, and he examines. You see, he wants a first-hand account of what the problem is. He wants to see for himself. He is going to a place, listen now, he is going to a place that has been broken for years. Now, the opinions of the people who are there are important, but those people have tolerated the brokenness for years. And he needs to make sure that he doesn't just hear their opinions, but that he sees it for himself. All right? Not just the opinions of the people who have tolerated the brokenness for years and years and years. That's important. But he says, I've got to see it. I've got to get myself into the fabric of this city and see the brokenness for myself. Now, the Hebrew word for examining is a medical term for looking into a wound to accurately understand the extent of the damage. If you look it up on blueletterbible.com, that's what it'll say. It's about probing a wound in order to decide, once you've probed the wound, to decide what needs done. Is there infection in there? Are there stitches required? What, what do we need? Does it need washed? What, it's... it's you, you know, you rock up to hospital, you will want a doctor to look before they tell you what, <laughs> what course of action needs to be taken. And what Nehemiah is doing here is he's probing the wounds of the city. Listen now. He's probing the wounds of the city to see what needs done. Now, I think the church fails to do this. What are the wounds? This is the third and final question. We've had, what do you want? What has God placed in your heart to do? And the third question is, what are the wounds in society that need to be probed and treated? I remember sitting about 10 years ago with a bunch of sixth formers in a Bible study and asking them what big issues they wanted to talk about. And I was expecting the usual answers. They usually want to talk about alcohol, sex, the end of the world, and other such things. But this one girl, and I can still remember where she was sitting, I remember her name, she said, uh, I said, you know, what are, what are the issues for, for teenagers that, that you just want to talk about? 
and she said to me, anxiety. And I thought, I haven't a clue about anxiety. This is ten, about 10 years ago. She says, we want to talk about anxiety. We need to talk about anxiety. And I, and I listen, this is how ignorant I was. I said, There's a, is anxiety a big issue? Not in a condescending way, like, but is, is this a thing, a real, you know, a big problem for teens? She said, yeah, we're wrecked by it, by anxiety. What good is a Nehemiah who does not know what state the city's in? What good is a doctor who has not looked into the wound? What good is a church who does not know what the wounds are in society? Now, ultimately, the wound of society is sin. And ultimately, the remedy is King Jesus, okay? I'm not changing that. But we need to know what are the wounds in our society. This book is one of the most brilliant books I've ever written. No, I didn't write it. It's one of the most brilliant books I've ever read. In case I had a secret double life. (laughs) No, I can't take credit for this. That guy's called Mark Sayers. And he is a genius. He's sickeningly intelligent. And clued into culture in a way that is quite brilliant. Really, really brilliant. Um, He has a podcast called The Rebuilders. Where he discusses all sorts of things. He's a wonderful Australian accent. Very easy to listen to. And he's just a brilliant guy. But this book he released uh, a few months ago called A Non-Anxious Presence. And I've nearly finished the book. I'm only a couple of chapters from the end. What I've done with this book, and I don't know if I've ever done it before, but every single chapter I've read, I've reread it instantly as soon as I've got to the end of the chapter. I've read it once without underlining anything. And then I've gone back and read it again and underlined as I've gone along. It's fabulous. And some of it is, is a wee bit difficult to know exactly where he's going as he starts a chapter and launches out and starts to explain about some things. But then as he gets into it, you're just like, all the lights are going on all over the place. And he describes in a lot of detail how this world, our culture, is the perfect breeding ground for anxiety. Just everything in it is perfectly designed for anxiety to thrive and flourish and he and he then presents the fact that what does the church and in particular what does leadership christian leadership need to be in a society like that it needs to be a non-anxious presence in in an in an anxious society it really i highly recommend it it is fabulous it's not a theological book in terms of bible study but it is a wonderfully revealing read and a really perceptive dive into culture and what Christians and what the church needs to be in the culture we're in. So anxiety is one of the wounds of our society. What's the church doing to treat that wound? Or are we just doing what we always have done? What other ones have we got? Depression, obvious. There's abuse. This is becoming more and more apparent as more and more people talk about it those who have experienced abuse as children just in this last two weeks marcus mumford has spoken out and described how he was sexually abused as a child and released a song about it called appropriately called cannibal that wasn't a choice in the mind of a child and you knew it is one of the lines of the song if you're going to listen to it in the car on the way home be warned there's a few very potent words but It seems there's hardly a week goes by. If you read Christian news sites in the States, like churchleaders.com or something like that, there's hardly a week goes by that there's not exposure of abuse 
That is a wound in society. And the question I'm asking is, as a church, are we Nehemiah people? Are we rebuilders who carefully examine the wounds of society and then act in response to know how to bring the good news of Jesus to bring healing to those wounds? Or do we just do what we've always done? (laughs) Another way you could put that question is, What are you living with right now that's broken? Now, men, if you're like me, there's probably a few things in your house that are broken. And instead of replacing them, you just keep on patching them up and trying to squeeze an extra six months out of it. I see a few men smiling because they know the score. Yeah, you just keep on. You don't want to spend a couple of hundred quid buying a new appliance or whatever, and you you just patch it up. (laughs) And that's okay if you're talking about an appliance. It's not good enough if you're talking about people. What is it that we are living with in our society around us that's broken and we're just tolerating it and putting up with it and saying, well, it's okay. Are we just doing what we've always done? The world has changed in the past 20 years. No, in the past 10 years. No, in the past two years. (laughs) The world has changed at an absolutely terrifying pace. Are we just doing what we've always done? And with all respect, if, if we just continue to put up tents and hold a week or two weeks of special meetings, we're probably not really going to get into the wounds of society and bring healing into them. Linda will tell you that there is a vast waiting list of people who want counselling and a vast shortage of counsellors. I think an awful lot of what the church's ministry will be in in our lifetime will not be big meetings that you invite people to. It will be the entire church ministering into society, every member, because an awful lot of the ministry will be one-to-one. An awful lot of the ministry will take place in coffee shops and at kitchen tables and in dining rooms and on sofas. And it will take that because that's what people need. People want one-to-one. They want someone to listen to them and minister into their hearts. They don't want to go to big meetings. (laughs) Are we just doing what we've always done or are we adapting to the wounds of society? We're nearly done. You've listened well. It's a class chapter. Nehemiah says in verse 17, you see the trouble we're in. Now he starts to talk about his vision. He's kept it all in his heart, but now he's going to start talking about it. Jerusalem lies in ruins. Its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. Why did he have to do that? He's just a blow-in. Remember, there, as he goes into Jerusalem, there are people there who came back to Jerusalem decades ago with Zerubbabel. And there are others who came back years ago with Ezra. And Nehemiah rocks up and they're like, who are you? (laughs) We've been here for ages and you think you're going to swing into town and sort everything out. So Nehemiah has to tell them his credentials. He has to say to them, listen, fellas, I'm not bigging myself up, but here's the reality. God put this in my heart. I have prayed about it. He has given me favor. He's given me favor with the king. Let's do this. And he puts the question, he puts the invitation to the people, come, let us rebuild. And they replied, yes. Let us start rebuilding. So our questions 
going backwards, sorry, we've gone through them as we've gone through the chapter, but going back through the questions in reverse order is useful. And this, this I leave you with and I'm done. What are the wounds in society? There's something to talk about. What are the wounds in society? What has God put in your heart to do? And what do you want? Regarding the kingdom, what do you want? If you have the sort of, I don't know if it's an ideal, but I've told you this before, I've often sort of thought, what would it be like if I sat up at the top of the town as an old man in 40 years' time and looked down the street and thought about what, what we've done in the kingdom? What, what are the things that I'd want to say? All glory to God, of course. But what are the things that I'd love to just look down the street and say, we did that. We did that in the kingdom, by the Spirit, for the glory of God. We did that. What do you want in the kingdom? Huge questions. Please ponder them, pray over them, think about them, talk about them with your families and friends.